Acts 18, what a great place to be today. It's the last uh, Monday of our spring quarter, uh, or winter quarter, then we start the spring uh, quarter after the break. So I'm so glad to be doing this with you. What you're going to want to do is take a little note here and write it down and see what two things, two things do you not see in this chapter that we have pretty much seen everywhere we have been. I, I think you could probably find two. I have found one, and I always like to add an additional thing to this because I want to give you guys space to be creative, but I know for sure there's one, but I think there may be two if you guys look for it. Now, don't let me forget to ask it at the end of the chapter, okay? In chapter 18 of the Pentecostal Handbook, we learn Paul was faithful to reach out to the Jews in every city despite the persecution he faced. Also, God was faithful to make new disciples, though Paul's ministry every uh, though through Paul's ministry everywhere they went, and brought more team members to support the church planting work. So, I want you to notice that Acts chapter eighteen is really about. Paul and the team gathering up and, and becoming strong together. Jerry, would you let him slip in there for me, please? Thank you. And then you could just sit right there because we're getting a good view here now of this kind of area from the, uh, the live web feed. Thank you. So what we see is that, the, what we're going to see rather, is that Paul gets a team here. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. A couple neat things I want you to notice here is that uh, Paul was a tent maker. Paul was a tent maker as a way of living to provide for himself. We hear that brought up often in his letters uh, whenever finances are brought up, that he has been a burden to no one, that he's paid his own way. He talks about him having the right to receive money from the ministry, but he hasn't used that right. So we know now what he does for a living is he makes tents. And there's a lot you can learn about that historically, what that kind of occupation was. Another thing that's neat about this is that he runs into other Christians who happen to be tent makers. What came first, we don't know. Was he hanging out with tent makers, found out they were Christians? Or was he find, uh, hanging out with Christians that he found out there's some that are tent makers? We don't know. But we find out that there's a couple who do this together, Priscilla and Aquila. And what we notice is that they're in the business of doing this together. That's an interesting thing. It's a job that they do together. So it's like a family-run business for them. And I think that's cool that the wife's name's included in there because she's pretty important. A sad thing that we notice is that the persecution for the Jews by the Roman Empire is intensifying. This is going to lead to the destruction of their temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now we see that they're being forced to leave Rome. And as you look at commentaries, what is probably happening there is they're having too many protests, which the protests are based out of their wanting to have equal rights and the ability to live and flourish. And so they don't, they're not feeling like they're getting that. They're feeling oppressed, and they're trying to speak up for themselves. And Rome is like, no, man, we're not going to let you have any more than what you have. And the more you speak up, the more we're going to oppress you. And then eventually, now you're going to leave our capital city, and then that's going to turn into now we're going to destroy your temple. We're going to show you who's boss around here. And, and that seems to be 
the trend of what's happening in the culture at this time, but that does not stop the Jews from bringing the Christians to the Romans to suffer persecution, which you would think the Jewish people would start awakening to this, seeing this in their eschatology, that Jesus said that he would do all of these things in Matthew chapter 24, that the destruction of the temple would come. You would, see, you would think they would see this as the end of their world as they know it. Uh, but they don't. They're trying to grasp the power of the flesh. They're trying to make their kingdom come on earth, not as God's will, but as their will. And it's proving to be nothing but troublesome for them. Another thing that we see here is that though Paul is now in Corinth doing the work of the ministry, he's in such a relationship with the Jews that he's considering that first and foremost what he needs to do. So they keep persecuting him, but he keeps going to them. That is just like, it's almost like the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. But God commanded it because God knew there would be different results. We're going to hear about a leader of a synagogue and his whole household getting saved. So there is fruit coming from there, but he is literally putting himself in in the lion's den every time he does this. It's as if he's literally looking for trouble when he does it, but he's not. He's not looking for trouble. He's being obedient, but you can almost see from the Jewish point of view, it's like, leave us alone. Stop going to our people. We keep chasing you from city to city to city. We keep making you come before the governors. We bring you before our leaders. We beat you. We stone you. Leave us alone. But then the next chapter says, Paul goes to the synagogue every single week and he preaches the gospel. That shows us that we need to be just as determined in making disciples as Paul was to fulfilling the command. And once again, just another awesome note here at the beginning is that Paul believes that the Jewish people deserve this first. It's not that I think it's just a command, though he would do it out of the command. I believe he's also philosophically compelled to this because he knows that the Jewish people have been in covenant and there are true people who want to know about the Messiah. So in his heart, he's like, this is the right thing to do because I know they want to know what I didn't know. They want to know what the truth is. And though they keep, uh, some of them keep killing me, there's probably a lot of them that want to know what I want to know. And so just kind of put yourself in, in the position of these Jews that really don't know what's going on. So imagine like you're in Corinth, or you're a Jewish person, or you're a God-fearing Greek. Uh, news hasn't traveled to you yet about this new movement. You don't, you're, you know, you haven't heard much of it, and uh, you're going to synagogue, and all of a sudden, somebody comes to you and says, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Let me tell you about him. This is what's happened. He's raised from the dead. He, I was a Jewish leader, like if you were Paul in that situation, I, I, had, I have seen him. I mean, wouldn't that be the coolest thing? So I, I just I appreciate Paul's um, passion and his compassion for the Jewish people and the God-fearers here and his obedience to the command. All of that we can see right here. Now, let me just give you some goodies about Corinth. Any good commentary is going to have some of these cool pictures. This is kind of a, a cartoon rendition. It's hard to see even, uh, even here as I expand it, but maybe in your commentary, you guys can see more. Just a good book on uh, the city of Corinth, you know, from a, ch a church history standpoint. Uh, it was a huge city, uh, just a, a metropolitan city of that day with a lot of history. It goes back to the Greeks, uh, totally 
pagan, pagan city, uh, a city that had a port. Uh, so a lot of times uh, people that I hear preaching like, you know, because we know about things going on in New Orleans, compare this city to New Orleans. Um, had a lot of temple prostitution here. It was famous for a thousand prostitutes in the temple. Okay, so you can just kind of get the idea there, but they had the arena, they had their temples, they had their metropolitan area, and then here's kind of almost like a modern, uh, I mean like a, a modern artistic rendition of it. I mean, can you just imagine that? I mean, th- this this could have been, they say at, at its peak, it, it might have been around 100,000, but then it had got sacked by Rome when they took over uh, from the Greeks, and so maybe it was building itself back up to 40, 50, 60,000, who knows? But tens of thousands of people, uh, go, you know, a thousand-person prostitute place. I mean, that's huge, right? That kind of temple that could even fit a thousand prostitutes, let alone for them to do whatever they were doing in there. Uh, but you could just get an idea. I mean, this is the kind of city that Paul was reaching. And then we're going to go to Ephesus, which is even bigger. Uh, chapter 19, it's going to be all about Ephesus as Paul really uh, starts his third missionary journey. And so once again, this is not only the Pentecostal handbook, but it's also the urban Pentecostal handbook. Does, does that look like the backwoods here? Does that look like a whole lot of pastures and this and that? Now, there might have been farmers out there in suburban area, but this is urban. Okay, this is metropolitan. This is how God sent Paul. This is not just Paul in his own wisdom, though God, you know, might have used his wisdom in the sense of what he would see practically to do, but we know it's inspired by God because God is literally directing him. And in just a few uh, verses here, God's going to tell him, stay here because I got a plan for you here. Uh, I got a lot of people here that I want you to reach. And at that, at this point, it's good to kind of think about the book of Corinthians, you know. There's two books written to Corinthians, and there possibly is a third that might have been lost. There is possibly a third. And Corinthians is actually a book that's written in response to a letter that they had sent to him. Now, that would be real cool if we had the letter because then we could definitively, definitively understand the questions that Paul is dealing with there. Uh, but we'll see, like, as I've shown you before on timelines, uh, where uh, these things are coming at. So just to show you a timeline right here. Uh, we're still in the second missionary journey, which is around 50, 52 AD. And then Corinthians is written right, uh, first Corinthians written right around 55 AD after his, uh, his travels here. So what we can see as we look at the book of Corinthians is that they're definitely a wild bunch. They're definitely a wild bunch, but they're full of the Holy Spirit. God is moving even despite some of the situations that they're facing. And God is moving through this metropolitan church. Uh, Just some of the problems that they're facing is division over who's really the best apostle. Is it Peter? Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? We see that. We see that they're uh, having problems with immorality. They're supporting a man uh, basically sleeping with his mother-in-law. Then they're having problems among themselves with lawsuits, that they're suing each other. They're they're still thinking like Corinthians, not Christians. And then uh, we see that they're having problems with their meetings. They're getting drunk off the communion wine. Uh, they're, they're just speaking in tongues to each other, trying to be hyper-spiritual, outdoing each other. And those are just a few of the, the major problems that the book of Corinthians addresses. But that is relatable to a place like Chicago. I can see things like that happening. You deal with a big city, and you get a lot of new people saved. If you don't have a structure that can deal with it, then you're going to run into these kind of problems. Now, thankfully, Paul was there to oversee this church, and good things happened there. 
Okay, so just to review those first uh, four verses, basically Paul leaves Athens, he goes to Corinth, he meets Priscilla and Aquila who are leaving Rome and making their home now in Corinth. They're tent makers, Paul's doing tent making as well, and every Sabbath he's reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks. And then let me say this here, one of the reasons that Paul may stay here for a long time is that uh, there may be a large number of Jews like Priscilla and Aquila coming from Rome, so that may be a good base for him here um, as he builds the church. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to, t- uh, to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And at this point, I was listening to this, and it almost sounds like uh, because it had mentioned his tent making, that maybe now Paul, uh, uh, Luke is telling us that Paul is not working anymore, that he's too busy to do that. That's the only thing I can really get from the exclusivity statement there. Uh, Verse 6, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So here they get mad at him. These people right here, unsolicited as it seems from other cities, which before it seemed like they were following him from Thessalonica to other places, uh, here unsolicited from the Jewish people, from the Thessalonican Jews, these guys just on their own get sick of what he's saying. And if you notice, he does something here. He shakes off his clothes. Let's go to Matthew 10, 14. It seems, it seems similar to what Jesus had said, and it's always good to see similarities with Paul and Jesus even while the Gospels are still being written in his lifetime. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. So here's the idea of shaking dust off your feet, very similar to shaking dust off your clothes. And then he says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. That's a terminology that he uses again in Acts 20, 26 through 27. But where does he originally get that from? That is Ezekiel the prophet. And it's always good to be reminded that the... Christians' Bible, uh, the early church's Christians, uh, the early church Bible was the Old Testament. So here we see in Ezekiel, and I always, when I do E-Z-E, it puts me to, um, to Ezra. Let me go here. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17 says, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out, excuse me, speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their own life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. So do you see how it works here according to God? If they are wicked and God tells us to warn them and we do not, they will suffer for their own wickedness, but the blood or their, the metaphor, the responsibility of it will be on us. We still may go to heaven, but on our judgment day, because it seems like there's two judgment days in the Bible, one where heaven and hell is separated, or for those who get to stay on the new earth and those who get sent into the lake of fire more specifically, there's that judgment, and then there's the judgment of Christians, the rewards, the crowns, the, the revealing of what you did by fire, uh, you know, on, on that day where it shows whether or not you were truly who God said you were supposed to be, whether you had wood, hair, stubble, or precious stones. So on that day, it's revealed a lot of people may be shown to be held responsible for the, the people that they did not warn. And so you can, you can think about it like as if uh, this may happen at the first judgment day. Uh, you know, you're watching your friends go to hell, and God is actually allowing you to see blood on your hand going, you're partly responsible for that right there. And that's why we as a culture can't be afraid to speak up. 
And then he says, but if you do warn the wicked person, this is verse uh, 19 of chapter 3 here of Ezekiel, if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin, but you have saved, you will have saved yourself, okay? And uh, the idea that Paul is saying here is, I am innocent from what you have done to yourself. And this is the same thing with Jesus. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I have done all that I can. Now, this proves, once again, this is not the Calvinist handbook. So there's so many things that we see repetitive over. This is a Pentecostal handbook. This is a non-Calvinist Arminian handbook. And this is an urban, not a rural handbook. Now, can you apply these things to different kinds of contexts? Absolutely. But primarily Pentecostal, primarily urban, primarily non-Calvinist Arminian, right? Does everybody get that? And the reason why that is is because if, if God had not chosen them, then the blood on their own head would make no sense. He's basically saying, I preached to you, you made your choice, now you're going to hell and I'm going to move on. But if it's a Calvinistic mindset where God does the choosing from eternity past, then why would he even say this? He would say, God has not opened your hearts, has not destined you for salvation. He's just moving me on to the next group for those he's destined for salvation. You know, he wouldn't put it back on them. Now, I know there's a big word that they try to use called compatibilism that there can be a compatibility between God's sovereignty and man's free will, but that only contradicts their position even more. It only causes more of an issue. What is God being compatible with if he is sovereign ultimately over everything? He doesn't have to be compatible with anything, himself or another person's will. And if you're saying then he's compatible with man's will, then is man's will free? Because if man's will is not free, then there's no reason to even say he's being compatible. He's already been destined to be a sinner because of the fall of Adam. So, so neither one makes any, neither aside from God's perspective or man's perspective does the compatibility work. If they say, well, you'll always choose what is your greatest instinct, your greatest desire, that's the, what's, what's compatible here. Well, once again, how did I get that desire? How did, it, how did a lion get the desire for eating a, a, a animal over eating a carrot? Okay, God created him that way. So how does the sinner have the desire for sin over God's will? God created him that way. And that goes back to Romans 9. God created Esau for destruction. He's made to be doomed from the womb. It's all God. But see, that's the way they read it falsely, right? But we don't see it that way. God didn't choose Esau to go to hell according to Romans chapter 9. God chose Jacob over Esau as the nation of Israel over the Edomites. That's the simple thing. It never even says there that Esau goes to hell. As a matter of fact, when Jacob meets literal is uh, when Jacob meets literal Esau, he hugs him and says, you remind me of the face of God. Esau very much could have repented and been, be in heaven. It had nothing to do with personal salvation. It has to do with the choosing of nations. And how do we know that? Because you look at the reference of Jacob I love, Esau I hated. Where does that come from? That comes from Malachi, not the book of Genesis and the narrative of the individuals. It comes from God reiterating his promise to the Israelites over the descendants of Esau the Edomites. Boom, shakalaka. Come on, somebody. But once again, this shows us, and this is why he, the Bible says he would spend time with them day and night trying to persuade them because he saw the responsibility was on him too. 
Do you understand this? I know Calvinists will point out and say, well, you know, Calvinists have been great missionaries as well. Yes, but inconsistent to their theology. Because if you truly believe it's God's doing, then what do you have to be responsible for ultimately? You get it? It really works against the system of missions. But if you believe you are responsible as much as they are responsible, I shouldn't say as much as they're, they're responsible to their salvation, but you bear a part of the responsibility, let's say that, just like Ezekiel's time, right? Uh, then you see, I have to play a part in this. I have to do something, and I'll be rewarded or judged by it, right? And that goes right back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel wasn't a Calvinist prophet. Ezekiel's telling the same thing to the people. This is your choice. This is your choice, and I'm making my choice, too, to tell you what your choice needs to be, amen? And so that changes, really, the perspective to be consistent with the biblical narratives, the commands of the Bible, because otherwise you, you, you basically have, uh, you know, the idea from a Calvinist, if you're dead and you can't do anything until God does it, you basically have uh, people going to a cemetery commanding them to live, you know, and it's impossible to do so. Now, they may share the Ezekiel dead men's bones scenario, but once again, the dead men's bones is not a literal physical death. It's showing that they were spiritually dead, and God is joining them together now as a nation. A nation is being brought together, okay? But it's not a physical, uh, uh, excuse me, the, the spiritual death does, does not mean that this is individual salvation. The spiritual death is the death of their nation. As a whole, he is bringing them back together. Okay, that's why it says, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If I'm as dead as, as Lazarus, why do I get a choice to whether I wake up or not? You get what I'm saying? So when they make the comparison of the physical death to the spiritual death is the issue. That God is not making people up, uh, rise up like in Ezekiel's army to salvation without their choice, like their bones. That's the example they'll use right there. No, that's, that's the spiritual death of a nation and a nation being brought back together and God putting life in them. But that is not to the spirit. To the spirit, man, speak, God speaks to men's spirits that are already alive. And death there, when we say you're dead in your spirit, what died that day, what we're, not, we're not talking about like you have like a spirit and he's got two X's over his eyes and he's dead and his tongue is sticking out. What we mean by death is separation. Separation. This, the prodigal son, this is addressed when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. My son who was once dead is now alive. Was he dead physically, drawn in physically by the Father? No, spiritually, he was alive physically, but spiritually he was separated from God. And so, once again, bringing in that example of Ezekiel is talking about a nation that was dead and powerless, and now God is rising it up. That doesn't mean he's forcing them to be saved. That doesn't mean he's regenerating them first and then making, giving them the choice to be saved. He's calling the nation back, okay? So don't let these illustrations of death get in your head and change what the Bible's actually using them for. This right here shows us very clearly, your blood is on your heads. See, the greatest excuse you could say on Judgment Day, if you were a Calvinist, was, is, is uh, well, God didn't make me to be righteous. So it's, it's God, it's your fault. You made me this way. And then he'll say, shut up. Who, how dare you talk back to me that way, Right? 
But that's not what, like I said, Romans 9 is saying. What, what Romans 9 is saying is not that people are going to use this as an excuse on Judgment Day. What it's saying is, what about the nations who say, why didn't you choose me, God? Why didn't you uh, choose us? Why didn't you choose the Egyptians? Why didn't you choose the Romans? And he's going to say, shut up, I get to make nations as I want them. And that's the Ezekiel example of the nations coming up, the bones coming together. He spared uh, uh, Israel from total annihilation and destruction. That was his choice to do it as a nation spiritually for a nation to rise up, not to save them without a choice. Does everybody get that? It's his choice to choose the nation, and that's why Paul even says, not all those who are Israel in Israel are Israel. Because just because God raised you up and let you be a part of this nation doesn't mean now you are going to heaven. You still have your own choice to make in Israel. Otherwise, then that means everybody in Israel at that time of Ezekiel, everybody goes to heaven just because God raised them up? Come on, it doesn't make any sense. No, he's saving the nation of Israel so that he might save the people of Israel. And then from the people of Israel, save the nations, right, through the choice that they make. So when you go to hell, why do you go to hell? Because of your own fault. Is it because of God? No. Why don't you guys talk amongst yourself? I got to bust off this hoodie because I'm about ready to sweat too much in here. see a few of you definitely tracking with me. Others are still trying to catch up. The idea is you may not know as much of Calvinism as I was presenting in that rebuttal, but as you study, you'll, you'll know like how some already know, like, man, he just rebutted a whole bunch of things at once. But that's okay. You don't need to study all that uh, right now. Just understand that the point is here, and I wanted to make it clearly, this is Pentecostal preaching. This is Arminian preaching, which is you're going to hell because your choice. That's it. That's what I just want you to get to get, get right here. Your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent of it. And if Paul's innocent of it, who else is innocent of it? God's innocent of it, right? It is not God's determination for you to be going to hell. Now, did God ultimately know who would and would not choose him? Absolutely. There will not be one uh, empty seat, as the old preachers used to say, on the gospel ship. There will not be one empty seat there, amen? The elect have been numbered. There is a seat for every one of the elect. But who gets to become an elect? Who, what, what decides how we become in Christ? It says you were marked in him when you believed in Ephesians chapter 1. So God predestines us to salvation, those who he knew would believe, those he foreknew. He foreknew they would believe. Those are the ones that are the elect. So here's the ship of the elect going to heaven. He knows who will choose him, and he predestines them to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Amen? Amen. Verse 7, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door, which is really cool. He just leaves it like, you can almost see like in a metropolitan area. He leaves the synagogue and goes next door to Titius' house, uh, Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Boom. He just says, okay, I'm leaving the synagogue. going to go right over here. Got my guy. I'm going to start my Bible study in his house now. So that shows you that uh, they live in an urban area. This guy's house uh, was right next to the synagogue. He probably heard Paul preaching at the synagogue. He said, I believe. They said, We're, we don't want to hear from you anymore. And he goes, okay, I'll go to Titius' Titius's house here. And he goes right over there. And now he starts having Bible studies. Verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Now, is this insanity to keep going back to the Jews? No. There's results happening here. 
Leader of the synagogue gets saved. This man right here gets saved. And this is wonderful. Many people, the Bible says here, are getting saved and they're getting baptized. Now, would we still go if the Lord told us no one would get saved? Yeah. Prophets were sent sometimes just for the sake of the judgment so that the Lord, in this sense, would be innocent because he would say, I told you. The Lord even wants to look for the justice of his own name to defend his own name from false accusations by sending out the preachers. Think about that. Not that he has to justify himself, but it even says that God justified himself. Remember when Sam brought that up? Because that's what justification means in James. You show yourself to be right before others. When it says you're justified not by faith alone but by works, it doesn't mean that's how you're justified through for salvation. Sam taught us that justification can also mean you're proven true. You're proven right. And he showed us that it even says that, that Jesus said this so that God would be justified among them, right? So this sense of proving it to be true, proving one to be innocent, is happening as God is sending forth his preachers to show that he cares about the Jews and he wants them to be saved. And if they're going to go to hell, they're going to go to hell on their own because they didn't want to listen, Okay. So Crispus believes, uh, he's, he's a synagogue leader, his whole house believes in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Uh, and, and I kind of want to ask you guys now if you've caught anything yet, uh, but let me go through this a little bit, so don't let me forget it, okay, as we get towards the end of the chapter. One night, in, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Teaching them the word of God. Um, well, I want to bring it up. Let me just bring it up right now. Did anybody catch in the, in the first uh, 11 verses two things that you have not seen that were normally in every chapter? Yes. Yes, exactly, a revival or riot. Now, there's going to be a little bit of a riot right here after this. That's why I wanted to wait. But I can tell you, as this happens, nobody is beat from the Christians. Nobody is beat here. So you don't see any physical abuse here, which we've normally been seeing. And what's another thing that you have not seen? And I can tell you it will not happen for the rest of the chapter because normally it would be described right around these same sections. Especially around verse 9, it would be described. Think about it. In almost every description of where there's a revival, people are getting saved. What is normally mentioned? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. And like you said, rioting. People getting killed. So there's a very unique thing that's happening. There's neither, quote, unquote, revival, nor is there riot. Isn't that something? It's, it's, it's a unique way that, that Luke does this. So now we can only speculate. Was there a revival that he didn't talk about? Were people getting healed and he just didn't mention it? Or does this kind of fall in line of, of the way I was encouraging you guys to see it? And I use myself as the example. If you took my life of 20 years in ministry and reduced me down to 28 chapters, which you could read in a couple hours, right? Would you, would, you know, you tell my miracles in such a way, you would pretty much look like I'm always hitting home runs, right? Like you, you're showing my highlight reel on ESPN or SportsCenter. Maybe right here, it's intentional, and I'm just speculating that he's showing not everything they did was a home run. 
Not everything was a dead man being raised. Not everything was uh, lepers getting cleansed. Not everything was uh, blind eyes open. But now watch this. Watch this right here because this is very unique for the cessationists who believes the spirit, gifts of the Spirit has ceased. They would try to say, well, this means the, the gifts of the Spirit are kind of uh, you know, going away. They're fading out over time. But that's actually the exact opposite we see when he writes the people of Corinth. They're having boom, shakalaka, Holy Ghost services. But why doesn't it say it here? And in the next chapter, as he goes to Ephesus, people get baptized in the Holy Spirit. So the book of Acts is not even trying to tell us that there's a decreasing here. It almost, to me, in my personal opinion, because I find great encouragement from this, it is almost to me that it's showing us what the, the, the day-to-day operation of the church will look like. You're not going to have mountaintops every day. And you're not always going to be getting killed every day. This is kind of like the sowing and reaping stage. You're not going to be in the wilderness where miracles happen every day. You eat manna. You're going to have to learn to get up and farm. Do you notice that? That's a difference in the promise, uh, the difference of the wilderness miracles and the everyday life of the promised land. And I see like that's kind of how he's showing us church is happening here. And it's actually a place he stays the longest. Up until this point, this is the longest place uh, he's going to stay here. He says, don't be afraid. I got many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Year and a half, name one miracle, Luke, come on. Come on, tell us about one awesome thing that happened and then Pentecost broke out. And at the same point, they're, 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 it comes close, but there's not a point where they get beat, killed, stoned. And so sometimes, I, I just want to speak this to you, sometimes you'll feel like you're living in this kind of a passage. You may not see as many miracles as you once did. If that is true, I'm only speculating, okay? Before I go off on my preach right now, go allegorical on this. Let's just say there may be times where the description of the ministry is that way. Whether or not we know that's what's happening, we don't know for sure. But we know that that's the description of it. That's the description. And that's okay. The description is the, God is being preached. Disciples are being made. The church is growing. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Like I said, still the Pentecostal handbook because I know the gifts of the Spirit are present, but maybe there's not anything there that's so just, wow, revival, this thing happened. Maybe it's just every day they got together, one had a word, one had a prophecy. Maybe somebody got healed, but didn't really affect the community that much, but they were healed, you know. And then someone over here uh, gets filled with the Holy Spirit and God's present, you know. But, but it's not like Pentecost. Do you get what I'm saying? Sometimes it's not home runs, it's base hits. Not everything's a Hail Mary touchdown pass. Sometimes it's just first downs. And I just saw that here today as I was listening to it on my car. And I, I don't know about you, but you can go back and look it over and see if you can find anything hidden there. But those are the two things that I found missing there. While Galileo, um, Galileo, oh, it's not Galileo, and I listened to this, and I was, Galileo, 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 there we go, thank you. I listened to this oftentimes on the way here. Your way would work too. How were you pronouncing it? Yeah, Galileo, but see, there's no uh, I in between the two L's. Oh, you pronounced the L like that. Say it again. Galileo. See, but it was pronounced, as I was listening to it, Galileo. Galileo. That's how I was hearing it, okay? 
I always tell myself in the car, do not mess up these names because then you're going to have to explain you mess up the names. And it's going to be this whole long thing in the middle of the sermon. And I listen to myself and I'm probably like in the future right now listening to myself in the car going, why are you stopping to do this right now? You told yourself you weren't going to do it anymore, so stop doing it. You know, that's literally what happens. It's the humility of a pastor on, on Monday. When Galeo was proconsul of Achaia, and I'm sure I'm messing that up, Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. So now the attack is made. But nobody's beat, nobody's hurt. The riot starts to happen. But let's see what happens here. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as, a, as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, if you Jews were uh, making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about uh, words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. He's like, man, I don't even care. I will not judge of, I will not be a judge of such things. So Paul just gets off. He didn't even have to apply to Caesar there, uh, uh, Lawrence. He didn't have to do anything. This guy, he's already sick of it. And you can tell, it's like, why do you guys keep going to the Jews, uh, to the Romans? This is where sin makes a fool out of you. They had just drove your people out of Rome. Why are you messing with them? Get saved. Live for Jesus. No, but they don't listen. They don't listen. And now watch what happens. This is a unique situation right here. Then the crowd, uh, they're turned on Sothosanes. Don't you dare take it from me here. I appreciate your help, but I don't need it quite yet. I got this one. Sothosanes. Everybody goes Sothosanes. So Sothosanes. I love you. He's so good at this. He makes me look like really lame. He really does. But not on purpose. I actually need to help. Don't feel afraid to help me because I stumble so much. But there's a few more here, by the way, and I'm going to do it. So let me do it first. Let me, let me humble myself here in the sight of God and man. So Sathosanes, the synagogue leader, <laughs> I know I messed that up, and I did it the wrong way too, and beat him in front of the proconsul. He catch a beating. He gets beat. And Galeo showed no concern whatever. So you can see Luke is already catching on to this, you know, as he's writing this. He's like, these guys don't even give a rip about us. They, they let the Jews beat on one of theirs right in front of them, and he don't care. He's like, beat them up. Uh, the commentaries try uh, to do a couple things here to help us understand the situation. Uh, number one, why are they beating on one of their own? Uh, the idea is here is that possibly he let them down. So it, it, it could be that he's the new synagogue leader because Crispus got saved. So now he's the new synagogue leader, but he's doing a terrible job, and so they beat on him. But then what's unique about Sothosthenes here is that he's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. And so we see that he's now a companion of Paul. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothosthenes. So the question is, is that the same dude? Is it a popular name like, like Mike? And there's two Mikes here? Chances are it's not. It's the same guy. So now we have to ask ourselves a question. Did he get saved before or after the beaten? Now, it could be he caught the beating because as they showed up there, he didn't have their back as the new leader who was trying to be a peacemaker between the two groups. And they're like, we're mad at you. Why are you not taking our side? And they beat him for that. 
And that would be him catching the beating as a Christian, and that would take away my little insight that there was no beating of a Christian here. Or was he, in fact, a Jew doing part of the persecution here, bringing before the proconsul, catches a beating, and then gets some kind of a revelation after a beating? Because how many know you learn something after a beating, even if it's just the run faster or duck better? After a beating, you walk away with life lessons, amen? And so he might be thinking to himself, these guys don't have God on their side anymore. God is no longer with them. Uh, Ichabod, the glory, the kabod has left the building. I'm going with these guys. So who knows whether or not he caught his beating as a Christian or as a non-Christian. But those are the historical facts right there. Those are just the facts, okay? So now Paul was told that he shouldn't leave and nothing would happen to him, right? So God keeps his promise to Paul. So that's pretty amazing. Now Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for, for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So now he takes them with him. Notice how he's building his team in these relationships. I think everybody can find themselves somewhere here in this chapter, either as a Paul, either as an Aquila, a Priscilla. You can find yourself here in, in just a few short verses as an Apollos, uh, maybe a Timothy, a Silas. A Crispus, a convert? I mean, there's a lot of places to find yourself here in this story as being a part of the church. I just like when names are named because it makes, makes me feel like it's special to be in the church. Like he has my name written down. He knows our names. These people are mentioned here because God cares about them. So he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at... Okay, Drea. Shantrea. Centrea. There we go. Centrea. Centrea. And trust me, that's the way it comes out because I had to practice it with Drea. But I actually had to say it out loud here to you guys. Uh, he cut off his hair. I know that one little pity laugh. I take that. I received I know you love me. It's like, huh. No, literally, we were at a Greek restaurant, and um, we, I was there with my wife and, and uh, Adam and Christina, and some name, I don't even think it was a Greek name, they were trying to help me say and it was like, they said it, and then I said it wrong. They said it, I said it wrong. Then I started getting loud. I'm trying my best. And everybody's like looking at me. They said it, and I said it wrong again. And I, and I, I mispronounced it so many times. There are concepts in life that I can understand. There are deep places I can go with my mind. But the ability to pronounce names, proper grammar, eludes me. It is, this is my thorn in the flesh. And I have asked God to deliver me from this demon of bad grammar and Thothanes stuttering and weird ways of pronouncing names. But he says, my, my grace is sufficient for you. Amen. Half kidding there. Okay, so, don't say it. Drea, Centuria, Centrea, Centrea, Centrea. Centrea, there it is. Because I kept saying Centuria, Centuria, but it's Centrea is the way this guy was pronouncing it, okay? And I know you guys are having fun with me because it's, you know, I was listening to Lawrence preach one time and he was butchering the name so bad, you know? And then he tried to play it off. He was like, oh, that place. He's like, oh, this name, you know? And I was like, hold on, no, 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 no. We don't disrespect the word of God like that. I said, these names will last longer than your name, so we're going to honor them, amen? So if God found it fit to put them in the Bible, we will learn them. Centrea. Okay, so we'll go back to make this sentence make sense. Okay, then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centrea because of a vow he had taken. 
Now, once again, does this mean, ding, 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 this is the Jewish legalism handbook now? Because maybe they might agree with us all the way up until this point, not thinking of the black Hebrew Israelites but, or the Seventh-day Adventists, but let's think about Pentecostals who fall for this too. Dr. Michael Brown is always teaching them to not try to go back and be a Jew. You, you'll be laughed at by the Jews, and you'll be under the curse of the law, you know, because they won't take you seriously. Um, so it could be the Pentecostal, Arminian, urban Jewish legalism handbook. No, but because what do we see here is, what we see here is once again, Paul is a Jew interacting with Jews, and he's doing things on behalf of them. And it even says, it even says towards the end of the book that he goes to the temple for other Jews to make their vows and do such things. Now, uh, could there be more than just a missiological approach to this, that he literally wants to make a vow for his own spiritual growth, that he's not making vows that uh, maybe he had made as a Jew, and now he's going to go talk to the same people Jerusalem. This is probably a Nazarite vow. You, you, do, you, know, you make this commitment for a time. You don't cut your, your hair or your beard, and then you cut it off, and then you bring it to the priest, and then they burn it, okay? Uh, is he trying to do that to see more people? You know, it's like, hey, I'm, I, I used to make this vow every, let's say around Lent time, Christians do whatever. And so he's like, I'm, I'm observing this vow like I've always done, and I'm going to go show up during this time of Lent in my life, and, and I'll get to see my, my friends there in Jerusalem. Is that it? Or is he literally going, I want to get closer to God during this vow, okay? Either way, it doesn't mean we have to keep the vow. We know that the Gentiles have already been given the freedom not to follow the Jewish law. What now happens is the controversial discussion. Were Jews, and because I, I would say they're not anymore, and this is where I would disagree with my friend Sam, but I would up into a point, so we'd have to talk more about it. Uh, uh, Sam said that uh, Paul circumcised Timothy because Jews are still required to keep certain parts of the law, okay, until Jesus comes back. I don't agree with that. I don't believe a Jew has to be circumcised anymore, but I do believe in this time they had to be. Where do I make my distinction? The destruction of the temple. I believe once the temple was destroyed, there was no more need in being a Jew in any Old Testament 613 way. Now, they could, if they want to, keep the tradition of the circumcision and so forth and so on, but they do not have to. And I believe the culmination of it was when the temple was destroyed. So, under my system of of belief, excuse me, even if Paul does this for spiritual growth, he does it because the temple is still there. And in his eschatology, he probably literally believed he was going to see Jesus' second coming at that temple. Now, he dies before the destruction of it. But I believe those who saw the destruction of it, that was God's way of saying the old is obsolete. Because the author of Hebrews says, that which is fading is now obsolete, and the new covenant is here. You guys know what I'm talking about. And I believe that fading, depending on where you date the book of Hebrews, I don't know if it's going uh, to tell us here because they may not consider it as Paul's. I do believe it's Paul's. It's written by somebody else. And if it's not Paul written by somebody else, it's got to be one of his closest followers. Uh, they normally say Hebrews is 60 AD, though, right? Where do they say Hebrews is? I, I, I taught the class. I can't remember. Just look up the date of Hebrews. It could even be as late as 66 AD. Um, but go ahead and just give me the date on that. But the bottom line is it's before the destruction of the temple. Paul's still alive during that time. That's what we most, do it, uh, most see it that way. So my, my point in saying all of that, that's what Hebrews is, is preparing the people for. It's the destruction of the Jewish way of life. What do you have? 67 to 69, okay. 
It is uncertain. Okay, so it's not going to be 60. It's going to be 66. Maybe that's the number I have in my head, or I'm just making up numbers. I don't know. You know, it's hard to keep all these things straight, right? That's why I keep going back to these timelines. Does anything say 60 AD? I look at... So it's all, all you guys are getting before 70. Okay. When was Paul uh, killed? Because it's got to be before Paul. Maybe it is 66. Because wasn't Paul killed in 67? Look at the death of Paul for me, Jared. Por favor. 67. Yeah, so that's maybe why I have 66 in my head. Not 60, but 66. Either way, do you guys understand what I'm talking about? So Hebrews is basically the transition from the one covenant to the other one. And the proof of that is this temple is destroyed. Now, when people say that the... Uh, the, the, the glory of, and the prophet said this, and I believe it's Haggai. I'm just having you guys do a lot of work today. Find out the glory of the Lord. Yeah, it's great. The, the former, the latter glory is greater than the former glory. Uh, that was fulfilled. Jesus' glory in the temple, God coming to be with them personally, was greater than anything that had ever happened before. That was the fulfillment. Amen. Come on, let me get an amen to that. That promise was fulfilled. That, 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 that is a good thing to remember because otherwise, then, then Haggai was wrong. Because when they came back from the captivity, they rebuilt the temple. And there were some pretty lofty prophecies that came out. And one of them was this, the glory of this temple. It may not look as good as Solomon's temple, but the glory in this baby is going to be greater than the glory that was ever in Solomon's. Well, where was it then if it gets destroyed in 70 AD? It can only be fulfilled then as Jesus coming in. Jesus, God in the flesh, praise God. Okay, so Paul stays there. He's teaching. He's doing all these wonderful things. He then heads uh, from Syria. Uh, he's accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sails, he has his hair cut. In Centrea, he makes this vow. Then he arrives at Ephesus. And this is going to be the first time he arrives at Ephesus, but it's only just for a short time. And this is going to be the end of the second missionary journey. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. So he leaves them there now, basically transplanted them from Corinth to Ephesus. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. There he goes again. Go, Paul, go, you know. Uh, when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. So he couldn't do it there. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And that should always be the way we talk about the, our travel plans, if it's God's will, Lord willing. Then he, sent, he, then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem. Remember, it's always up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. So even though Antioch is up in north direction, it is always up to Jerusalem and down to somewhere from Jerusalem. Does that make sense? You guys remember all that? So here now Paul completed his second missionary journey, did one big circle, started off at Antioch. Him and Paul and Silas went there to Derby. Lystra gets stoned. God moves. He keeps going. He goes to Pisidian, Antioch, uh, Delirium, uh, Nicaea. He goes all the way over there to Treos. He hops on over to Napop, Neapolis, Apollonia, um, uh, Berea. I said he went to Nicaea, right? Not, yeah, he went to Nicaea. He goes to Thessalonica rather than to Berea. Then he goes down to Athens, from Athens, Corinth, then Centria, Centria. And then he goes from there to Ephesus. It doesn't mention about him uh, uh, sailing too much here, but he just sails all the way down to Caesarea, then goes down to Jerusalem. But you see, it actually says he goes up to Jerusalem, but he's actually going south. You see the language there? So he's going south, but up 
to Jerusalem, and then he's going north up to, uh, to Antioch again, but he's going down because he's going from the Mount, the Mount Zion there, um, to Antioch, and that's where he ends. And where did Paul and, uh, uh, where, I mean, where did uh, uh, Barnabas and Marco? Cyprus. <laughs> God bless them. God bless them there at Cyprus. And we don't know what happens to him after that. And that's all right. God bless them. We'll see them in heaven. They'll probably have more glory than us, but that's okay. I will tease them a little bit down here. You, shall, you should have listened to Paul. That's our bottom line. You should have listened to your apostle. And then we're going to start the third missionary journey here in Acts uh, chapter 18, verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia. And don't say this one. Now, I would normally say Pergia, Pergia. But it is not Pergia, and it is silent. It's, it's like an F here. Phrygia. 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 Something like that. What are you going to say? Phrygia. Phrygia. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an F sound, like phone there. I remember that. Yeah, Phrygia. Phrygia. Let's just say Phrygia. Okay, let's say Phrygia there. You get, you have to, how to say? It? You put it up. Phrygia, boom! Thank you. Strengthening all the disciples. So he got, we didn't even care about that. It's like Phrygia. <laughs> okay, let's read it again. Let's have it make sense. Now I can actually pronounce it. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So as we can see, he's going to do what he did in the second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, he's going to take that place again and kind of take that same route. Do you all see it? He's just keep making the same circle, and this time he actually doesn't expand it. Uh, before he did expand it, but uh, now it's almost going to be the same, same route as the, first, uh, as, as the second missionary journey. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Though he knew only of the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him... They invited, him to their home. He, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. A couple unique things right here is how did Apollo get saved and know about Jesus but only know John's baptism? This is my speculation right here. You remember the Great Commission being given and his baptism, right? But we don't know in the timeline of when that was given after his resurrection, so as he was resurrected, meeting with people, like on the road to Emmaus, 500 people saw him, the Bible says. They might have left during that 40-day time before he gave the instruction of his baptism. Yeah, you guys like that? That took me a while to figure that one out. No, I'm serious, man. I had to try to figure out how in the world is he saved, but he doesn't know of the right baptism. He only knows of John's baptism. So I began to think about it like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. From Jesus' resurrection to the Great Commission, he's 
He's probably get, got a messenger from there um, because everybody else is going to tell you to get saved and get baptized. That's going to be a part of their message. Now that you're saved, now get baptized. So how do you, uh, and this, but see, the God-fearer would not know of Jesus. So that's where the confusion was coming in. He's not a God-fearer. He actually knows of Jesus, but yet he only has the baptism of John. Some God-fearers only had the baptism of John, right? Because they would have went to John as a Jew and been baptized. So that all would have made sense. But he is a Christian. He knows the way of Jesus. He is rocking them from the Old Testament. He is an awesome apologist right here, um, which the words I do not believe uh, play on each other at all. Apologia is, is, is where we get the word apologetics from, and he has the L there instead of the G. Uh, so it just happens to sound the first, sound similar because the first few words like mouse and house, not really related. You all with me? So anyways, uh, he's an awesome apologist, and so that's where I came up with this theory, and I didn't check a commentary because I actually caught it on the way here. You guys can check it, is that he must have heard the testimony from somebody in those 40 days that wasn't able to hear the Great Commission because time, time uh, uh, rather, uh, information doesn't travel fast during that time. So, so imagine like you're one of those 500 disciples, you hear about it, you go see Jesus, wow, you're resurrected, but you leave, you, you got to go back, you're just traveling to Jerusalem, you just went there to do something, you've got to go back, you can't stay there for another 30 days, when, 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 Jesus has only been raised 10 days, you stay for 3 days, 13 days, right, there, you can't stay another 27 days, you've got to go, you've got to go back home, and then it's like, hey, my disciples will tell you the rest later, it's like, okay. And now you just go tell everybody about Jesus. You convince them through the scriptures, like how Jesus did with the people on the road to Emmaus. You're making disciples, and that and uh, and that's basically what's happening here. Now I don't think um, I'm not trying to say Apollos was one of the uh, eyewitnesses to the resurrection. I'm saying he probably met one of those guys because. You know, it doesn't say it. Now, that doesn't mean he couldn't, have, he couldn't have been an eyewitness. He could have been one of the 500 and just been himself in that situation where he leaves early. But he's speaking boldly, dude. He's rocking these people. Now, another thing I want you to notice is that Priscilla and Aquila, you notice how I keep saying husband and wife, husband and wife. Why not just, why not just uh, the husband, Aquila? Why does it say Priscilla? See, we're seeing here women are in the ministry too. And it even makes it, makes, makes it clear here by using the plural. They invited him to their home. See equality there? And explained to him the way of God more adequately. See, was this woman teaching a man? I think so. Okay, I think so. Uh, when, and why, why are those prohibitions there? Because they were getting saved from places like um, Ephesus and Corinth where they were false prophets. Uh, these prostitutes were false prophets, and they're now probably abusing their authority in the church, and now Paul has to shut them down. So it was a temporary ban in these locations. But people like Phoebe, Phoebe and Priscilla and Andronicus uh, and uh, Junia, uh, Andronicus, rather, uh, no, Junia is the wife, sorry. Junia, Phoebe, Priscilla are leaders in the house teaching. I believe that. When Apollos, because they didn't have the prohibition brought against them, when, when Apollos went to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. So it's like, hey, as you're traveling, we'll give you this letter to let everybody know you're, you're, on, the good, you're on the team, you're a good guy. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. Now watch this. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible right here, uh, the book of Acts especially. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So he was just rocking them hard, and people were like, yay, go Apollos. Amen. And then we'll uh, take up next chapter when we get back from the break as Paul 
is in Ephesus. It literally just kind of skips through that right to Ephesus. So we got whatever we got of him traveling to Pergia and uh, Galatia was just here in this chapter. So there's not a lot going on there that, that's brought up. Uh, chapter 19 starts off with him in Ephesus doing the boom shakalaka with some of John's disciples. Uh, here's what we need to take away from this, is that sometimes in places we have the greatest resistance like he did in Corinth right there with that what seemed to be a huge uh, contingency against, against him. We see in those places of resistance, God will bring forth the greatest fruit, just like he did with Paul in Corinth. That ended up being the longest place he stayed, even though they seemed like they were trying to resist him a lot, but it never went beyond uh, that just that resistance. It never went to actually persecution and killing and all of that. But they were really resisting him. They didn't want him there. They kicked him out. They tried to bring him before the proconsul. And and personally, in my opinion, once again, that I take away from this and why it happened was because they were losing their power and authority. And it's like they they get like their last attempt here as we get into his third missionary journey to bring him down. They take these vows, right? You remember we talked a little bit about that, is that anger will make you even want to murder people, and that's what they did in the Bible. They took vows they won't even eat or drink until we kill him, and it's, it still doesn't work. Um, God has mercy on Paul. Let's pray. Father, make us fruitful as team members of apostolic teams that go and plant churches around the world. And let us uh, see signs and wonders come forth, God. But not even just for the sake of a sign and a wonder, but for the sake of being obedient and making disciples. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.